Hope y'all are doing well. Um, my name is Fudd. Um, it's just a nickname. And this is our third week in a series that we're calling True and Better. So if you haven't been here with us, I'll give you a little bit of explanation of what's going on. And then uh, we'll jump in. But basically what's been going on is this True and Better is our Christmas series. And so we've been preparing, looking forward to this coming Christmas by um, doing this series called True and Better. And what we've been doing is in the Old Testament... Um, those people were being prepared to look forward to the coming Savior. And so um, in very similar ways, this particular month, we're all kind of preparing our hearts, desiring to prepare our hearts to look forward to Christmas Day. Now, the point of looking forward to the Christmas Day is to um, remind ourselves that God was willing to come in the form of man and live among us and dwell among us and eventually go to a cross um, and die for our sins. And so therefore, at this Christmas season, we look forward to that with anticipation and excitement that he would be willing to do that. And so the idea of this particular, this particular series that we're going through is much like the Old Testament saints that were looking forward to the coming Messiah, we're going to look at stories of these Old Testament saints and see how they were looking toward this, the coming Messiah. But there's one other thing that we should highlight, which is kind of the most important thing, which is why it's called True and Better which is these Old Testament saints, these people that lived in the Old Testament, they're not just random stories of a person that kind of lived, got to live 90 years and die or 800 years or whatever, you know. But they actually all, um, in in some kind of way, as they've been, uh, been alive and then go for a little bit and die, as we look at their particular life in the Old Testament, in some way, that person lives out or embodies characteristics of Jesus. And so... Two weeks ago, we started with Isaac and Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham took Isaac up and was going to offer his son as a sacrifice on the altar. And then we stopped and we see that in a lot of ways, Isaac prefigures or um, shows us in a shadow of a sense of the embodiment of the ultimate sacrifice that will be in Christ. And then last week, Jack, over really all five books of the Bible, did the same thing and showed us that in Moses. Predominantly, he used Deuteronomy, but this is in Exodus, whenever the people at that particular time were enslaved under the the Egyptians. And just as Moses led the, the Israelites out of slavery, out of captivity, into the promised land, this is the same thing Jesus does for us. He takes us and breaks down by dying on the cross, the bondage that was held to us leads us out of slavery of sin and into, quote-unquote, the promised land, which is one day for us heaven. And so these Old Testament figures are not just random, haphazard stories that don't mean anything. They're actually all connected to one big story, which is God redeeming man. And all these Old Testament figures in some way embody the work of Jesus. And so Moses embodies the work of Jesus by leaving the Isra- leading the Israelites out of slavery, just like he leads us out of slavery to sin. And so next week, we're going to do another big character, David, King David. Um, but we thought, Jack and I thought it would just be awesome fun if as we're, uh, as we're looking in the Old Testament and looking at these, these characters, that we would dive into maybe one of the, the less known characters in the Old Testament so that we can all, I mean, it's easy for us to, as we look at Abraham and Moses and even David, say, yeah, I get that. I mean, that's, that makes sense to me and how they prefigure Christ or, or a foreshadow of what's true and better Jesus. I mean, that was what was captured in this little uh, this videos before. As you see the Old Testament character doing something, something that's familiar, and all of a sudden it turns and changes into a New Testament Christ. And so you're like, ah, oh, I get it. And so, um, but we thought it'd be fun if while we're doing this, we saw a, a smaller, less known figure in the, in the Old Testament, Boaz. And the reason why we want to do this is so that you can know and see that Christ is all over the Old Testament. Jesus Christ himself is all throughout the Old, Test- Old Testament so that we can see that um, it's not just the New Testament that tells us the gospel, but instead it's the entire Bible. Now, I don't know why it's 95 degrees in this room, but we're all just going to have to deal with it. I'm sweating probably more than y'all, and this, it'll just remind us that this is how hot that hell would be. Um, probably, actually, tremendously hotter, and we don't want anyone to go there. And so this will be a good reminder for us to have a deep desire to tell people about Jesus as we're here in this, this sauna um, today. So I'm going to pray, and then hopefully our minds will be taken off that nonsense I just said, and we'll be back to the actual point of today, which is uh, talking about Jesus. And then we will, uh, 
we'll dive in. So if you're looking for the book that we're going to be in, it's in the book of Ruth. Um, if you want to know what that is, you have the first five books of the Bible, Joshua, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth. My Bible drill teacher just taught me that little sentence. Joshua, he's real judgmental, and he always is judging Ruth in particular. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And so that's where we'll be, that small little four-chapter book, Ruth, right there. So um, let me pray, and then we're going to jump in into the true and better Boaz, which is, which is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time. I pray that all of us now would, would be able to focus in on your word, focus in on Christ. I pray that you'll help me right now speak um, with clarity of thought, clarity of mind, and that everyone here as we listen would, would look past maybe any, any uh, things that I say would, that would be distracting, but Lord, that we would see the truth of Christ in the scripture and that it would so captivate our hearts and soul. We love you, Lord, and I just pray that if anyone here doesn't know Christ, that you would save them this morning, that they would see finally or uh, understand the, the truth of the good news of Jesus, and they would trust in Christ and be saved forever. And I pray for those that do know Christ, that as they hear that, this, this text on the graciousness of God to redeem us, that they would want to live their lives differently in light of it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're looking forward to Christ. It's It's... December the uh, 15th? I don't know what it is. It's December the 15th, but we really need to get going on buying Christmas presents. But it's December the 15th. I'm just kind of kidding. So, um, but we're looking forward to Christmas Day. We're looking forward to Christ because he's, and we're also looking forward to the coming Christ one day where he's going to come and save us all forever. So thus far, as we've been going through this, this uh, little series, we've traced how God randomly chose this man, Abraham, he had, Abraham hadn't done anything particularly great. He was just a random guy, pagan. And he said, I'm going to choose you to be the father of Israel. He had a son, he had a son. They have 12 sons. And all of a sudden, there's 12 tribes. And then a famine happens. One of them kind of escapes because they didn't like him, named Joseph, coat of many colors. He's over here in Egypt. He rises up into power. The famine comes. All the family, through circumstances, finally come over here to Egypt where there's food. And Joseph is taking care of everybody. He's in, he's in touch with the king, Pharaoh. He's the second man. They're all good friends. All the family, all the Israelites that are having children and having children, this huge family are being taken care of. New king comes. He doesn't really know the whole, the whole deal anymore. And this particular 12, 12 sons who are starting to have children, they're just getting huge, massive. Jack kind of went through all this last, year, last, last week. Um, and so this huge bit of people called the Israelites are so massive, the king says, we need to enslave them. Uh, they don't need to be equal with us because if they're equal with us, they'll take over. And we, I don't want to give up my kingdom. And so he enslaves them all. And then eventually Moses is kind of raised up from, from God. Uh, long story, that was all last week. And then Moses leads them out to the promised land. They get right to the cusp. The, right there, the edge of the promised land. And Moses, through some disobedience, doesn't get to go into the promised land. But instead, Joshua is going to be the one that leads them into the promised land. Now they're in the promised land. And they're in what's known as the period of the judges. This is before they had kings. So they, ha- they have the judges that kind of rule and reign. And that's the part of the story that we're going to pick up in today. We're going to par- pick up in the period of the judges. Now, that's not necessarily vastly important. But it's just important to know that we're before the king is coming. There's a, there's a prospective king that will come one day in Israel. Um, and we're in that particular part there. So I want to... Uh, give you a big idea of the book of Ruth, and then I want to give you a little bit of understanding of how this particular guy that we're going to look at, Boaz, came on the scene. So the, the one particular word that's kind of the theme of the book of Ruth is chesed. That's gross, but that's the name of it. Chesed, and it's a Hebrew word. And you can see it here in chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each two of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly. May the Lord deal chesed with you. And this, this chesed, I'm not going to stop doing that, but I'm just going to say hesed from now on. But this word means covenant loyalty. This is a deep, deep loving kindness word that's being shown here. And really this is the theme of what we're going to see over the entire book. It's used again in 220. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, whose hesed, has not forsaken the living or the dead. You can also see it one column over, at least in my Bible, in chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, And he said to you, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness or hesed greater than the first. So this overall theme, that if we want to kind of put one word theme on the book of, of Ruth, it's the covenant loyalty that's shown by God to his particular people. Now, to understand... Um, 
why we're going to pick this random, small kind of fella named Boaz and say that he, in a lot of ways, embodies or prefigures the coming Christ, I want to give you a little understanding of who Boaz is. So if you will, take two books to the left, just, just flip uh, two books to the left with me back over to Joshua, and we're going to see who <clears throat> Boaz is. Now, I just talked about they got right up there to the cusp of the promised land, Moses he, he doesn't uh, strike the rock, but speaks to the rock, or he speaks to the rock and doesn't strike it. It's one of those two. I always get them backwards. He does something wrong as far as hitting the rock or striking the rock or talking to the rock. And water comes out, but he wasn't supposed to. And God said, since you d- disobeyed, you didn't do it right, um, you're not going to get to go into the promised land. I mean, it just seems kind of like a bum deal for Moses, but who are we? We're not God. Um, he says, because you did that one, you don't get to go into the promised land. Joshua is going to be the one that leads them into the promised land. So they're right there at the promised land. They're getting ready to go. Joshua, smart guys, like, ah, we got to be safe here. Let's listen to a couple people in there. Let's make sure everything's okay. Um, but all along the way there, they had just been, you know, terrorizing. They had been getting it done, and everybody knew who they were. So if you can see here in Joshua chapter 2, uh, here it is. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men, that doesn't mean he had no fathers, his literal name was Nun, um, sent two men secretly from Shatim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And as they went, came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. So he sent these spies, and he wants them to check out the land and see what's going on. And they come up to this prostitute named Rahab in this land. Verse 2, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Lie. I mean, Fat, huge, bold-faced lie right there. But anyway, uh, pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. She's hiding them. She's like, I don't know where they are. You probably should go find them, but they're out there somewhere in my attic. Um, And it says in verse 6, But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them in the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, the gate. I mean, we don't know all this landscape, but they, they, they left, right? And so Rahab the prostitute hides these two spies and tells them, I don't know. They went that way, and there they are in the attic. Um, The whole point is this. In verse 8, you can see, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear has fallen upon us, and all that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. In other words, I know that this particular land is going to be taken over by the Israelites. It seems to be that that's the way things are going for y'all, pretty good. And so here's what I did. I lied to those guys and told them that I didn't know where you were, so that whenever you take over this whole land and just lay waste it and destroy everybody like you've been doing, what I want you to do is this. Um, me and my family that lives in this house, just don't kill us. Keep us alive, whatever you want with the rest. Um, not the most loyal lady, Rahab, but th- they say basically, okay. So you can see, start at verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. This is Rahab talking. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens and above on earth and beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, Hesed, with you, you will also deal kindly with me in my father's house and give me a sure sign. So she said, just keep me alive. How about that? Does that sound like a good deal? When all your people come in here and lay waste and y'all take over, will you do that? Flip about four chapters to the right to chapter 6, and let's see what happens with Rahab. Chapter 6, starting at verse 22. Chapter 6, 22. It says, But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua, said, Go into the, So they, they, they went there, they laid waste, and they're about to get, they're about to get their, their, their fight on. And it says, Go into the prostitute's house, that's Rahab, and bring her out. Um, from there, the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore. So the young men who had been the spies went in, brought Rahab and all her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. So they, they got Rahab and all the people and they brought them outside. And it says, um, verse 24, and then they burned the whole city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasure of the house of the Lord. So Rahab's family was saved. They burned everything else, but they were saved. And here it is in 25, right here. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, which means salvation, by the way, which is Jesus' name in the New Testament, salvation, saved alive. So now you can see how Joshua prefigures Christ. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, let's just 
take it one little step back, and we're not going to get into the ethical question of, if I lie, does Jesus bless me like he did Rahab? That's a whole other philosophy class, and you can talk about that later. But what we do know is this. The two spies were protected by Rahab. They said, we'll protect you. And all of a sudden, Rahab, the, the Gentile pagan prostitute, makes a deal. Her family saved. And now it says in 25, Rahab, the father, this prostitute, is invited into the family of Israel and lives with them that, to this very day. So now Rahab's truck, uh, Rahab the prostitute, she's trucking along in her life. She marries this really cool guy. He's got a cool name. His name's Salmon. Um, and so they decide to have a child together. Salmon and Rahab have a child, and they name him Boaz. And so now we've come up to this guy, Boaz, who is a part of Israel because his dad, Salmon, is part of Israel, although his mom, Rahab, is a Gentile. But still, because he is half Israel, he's a part of the family, um, Boaz is. And so back over here to, to Ruth. We've come up here to this particular time. So we're in the book of Ruth. So what's going on is you've got Naomi. She's the mother-in-law of these two, these two daughters-in-law. One's named Ruth and one name is, one's named Orpah. It's not Oprah, it's Orpah. And so they're both, they're both coming home because all of their husbands and children are dead. They have nothing. And so they were kind of off in a foreign land and they're coming back to where the Israelites are, to Jerusalem. I'm sorry, to Bethlehem. And when they're coming back, uh, they're basically saying, we have nothing, we have no way to live. In this particular time, women really needed to have um, a husband, not just for protection, but also for an economic vitality. They weren't going to have a whole lot of economic success and wouldn't have uh, longevity and sustenance. They wouldn't have a lot of food coming their way to live. And so they knew if they had a husband who could have a job and own land and provide and give them food and children, etc. And, and, and also, ch- women, their identity was based on being able to have children. So they're coming back, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, with no children and no husbands. So you can see that they're destitute, but also very upset. Let's just to say the least. Very upset. And they're coming back. Orpah leaves, they're going, she, she just kind of says, I'm going back, it's all over for me. But as Naomi and Ruth are coming here, uh, they're, they're coming to this particular land where the Israelites are, and they're trying to get acclimated to life back here. They're struggling to, to eat, they're struggling to be uh, fitting into the thing. And what they really need in order to be solidified back into the Israelites is someone to marry this lady Ruth. I mean, if Ruth gets hooked then everything's good, right? And so that's kind of the story here of this lady, a foreigner, a Gentile, Ruth, being brought into the family. So here we are. Um, what I'm going to do is not necessarily go through uh, verse by verse all the way through. I'm going to take a, uh, an, a big view over the book of Ruth, and I'm going to skip around some. But I wanted us to see Boaz's beginning because, like Jesus, Boaz's mom and, and Jesus' mom are both perceived to have a controversial, sinful sexual past. Rahab, the prostitute, Jesus' mom, the virgin that's pregnant. Like if someone came to you and said, yeah, my, uh, my wife's pregnant and she's a virgin. We we're all like, uh-huh, sure. Um, so there's a, there's a little bit of a controversial, perceived controversial, sinful past. So we can already see the prefiguring of Christ and that Boaz's mom even has a controversial, perceived sinful past, as does Jesus's. And the ESV Study Bible says that Boaz, as he's going to come, and eventually we know, I'm giving it, it away, I'm sorry, but he does marry Ruth. Um, he prefigures Christ by an an Enabling Naomi's disgrace to be removed, this mother-in-law who had, no, who had no husband, had nothing, is brought, and she's disgraced. She's brought back into the family because her daughter-in-law is married, so she's back. And also, Ruth, who's a foreigner, a pagan, a Gentile, she's included now in the people of God in the same way that Jesus um, includes the Gentiles into the people of God when he goes to the cross. So, uh, the English Study Bible says that. And let's, let's look one little thing about, about Boaz, and then we're going to skip around, and I'm going to show you a couple things. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Boaz steps on the scene for us. This guy, Boaz, he's, he's a stud. I mean, he's just an awesome fella. Uh, and it says in verse 1, Now Naomi had a relative, her husband's, a worthy man, her husband being the cool guy Salmon, of her, of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz whose name was Boaz, and the characters introduced to us, and so we're all kind of, even though I've already given away, on the edge of our seat, what's going to happen to Naomi and Ruth? Is Boaz going to step up? 
Is he going to be a single guy for the rest of his life? Is she going to be a single girl? So we're on, we're on the edge of our seat. But for, uh, for us, we're not going through the book of Ruth, but instead we're doing something called True and Better, where we're looking at these Old Testament characters and wanting to see how they prefigure Christ. Now, I grew up in the 80s, which I think, as I'm getting older, really were the best time period that there ever was. There were some good, there were some good things um, in other time periods, but as I grew up in the 80s, I mean, there's so many good things like uh, the original Atari and ALF and Back to the Future and, today, Bo Jackson. He is a, an Auburn graduate. He's, since his, uh, the Heisman Trophy candidate, if y'all probably didn't know this, but some of, some of you might know this, the Heisman Trophy winner was announced yesterday. He's from this tiny little town in Alabama, same as Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson won the Heisman a long time ago, um, but he was a two-sport professional athlete. He played professional football and professional baseball. It was just, he was out of this world good. He played for the Raiders and the Royals. He was crazy good until he got hurt. He had this weird hip thing, um, and, he, and he had to leave sports, and now he just kills deer in Alabama. But um, if you see, it's 30 for 30. But anyway, back to this. But whenever in the heyday, in, in the 80s, like, Bo was everything. Bo Jackson, Bo Knows, Bo Knows. They made this commercial where uh, Nike, he was sponsored by Nike, where he's playing baseball, and it's like, Bo Knows baseball, and he's running all over. Bo Knows football, and he's destroying, and he's like out on the hockey ice and he's like Bo knows hockey and he's like maybe and he's Bo knows tennis and he's you know serving or whatever and all of a sudden he's playing guitar with Bo Diddley and he's like really terrible he's like Bo doesn't know guitar and then Bo Diddley says Bo you don't know Diddley and so the whole point is um Bo knows Bo and there was this little 80s kind of thing that was kept kept going on which is Bo knows if there's anything to know Bo knows and so if you grew up in that time period you're right there with me you have you have you know exactly what I'm talking about but for the other 75% of uh, of you I'm just gonna say there was this little thing where Bo knows and everybody just knew Bo knows everything he knows how to do everything well I thought it would be neat as we're looking at uh, a character whose name is Bo as that we would say Bo knows stuff right this particular character Bo he knows some stuff so the first thing I want you to see in chapter 4 is that Bo knows building. Bo knows building. So I actually don't put it on the screen like that. I try to be a little more respectful. But the first thing I want you to see is Boaz prefigures Christ as building the house of Israel. Bo knows building. You're going to see this in chapter 4, verse 11. So this is the end of the story. I've already given it away, so it's not a big deal. But what happens is whenever Boaz marries Ruth, they do have a child. And he has a really cool name too. His name's Obed. Um, and so we know that what's happened now is because Obed is going to have another son named Jesse, and Jesse's going to have another son, King David. I mean, the stud, the man after God's own heart. And so we know that because of this, God is through, through um, Boaz building the house of Israel. The house of Israel, the line, the promise, the seed, the building of it is happening. Boaz is building the house of Israel. It says it in 4.11, Then all the peoples who were at the gate of the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath. We can't say that, right? And be renowned in Bethlehem. So we see, Boaz, you are being actively used by God to build up the house of Israel. How does that relate to Jesus? Well, Boaz, Bono's building, Boaz is prefiguring Christ as also in the same way that Boaz builds the house of Israel. Jesus is the truer and better Boaz because he is the one who builds the house of Israel or builds the family of God. So in Hebrews, building the house of Israel is the same as building the church or making sons and daughters of God. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, speaking of Jesus and how he builds the house of God, it says, For it was fitting that he, that's Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist. Everything exists for God's glory, for Jesus, and everything exists because of Jesus in bringing many sons to glory. Jesus is bringing many sons and daughters to to glory because he's building the house of God, should should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So he is the founder of all of our salvation, So Boaz, as he builds the house of Israel, Jesus is the truer and better Boaz because he brings many sons and daughters into glory, brings many sons and daughters into the house of God because he's willing to go to the cross for them and die. And by faith in them, they are now brought into the family. Jesus knows building, certainly. He builds up the house of God. That's the first one that we see in 411. The next one that we're going to see is Bono's protecting. Bono's protecting. So... Um, in the middle of the, 
of the, of the story where we're kind of wondering what's going to happen with Boaz and Ruth. There's a little time period where uh, we're going to be in chapter 3, starting around verse 9. Um, where there's a little place in here in the, in the Hebrew where we're going to understand that Boaz is going to be a protector of Ruth. He's going to finally extend this protection towards Ruth. So he's having a party, he's eating, he's drinking, he's, he, he goes to sleep, and then um, along that time, Ruth has had a conversation with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi's like, listen, I think you got a shot with this guy, Boaz. So what I want you to do is go get yourself all cleaned up. Now, I've actually heard people say, therefore, the application is women should have themselves cleaned up for dating men. Bad. That's not the point, right? But anyway, back to this. Um, She says, get yourself all cleaned up. Make yourself kind of right there in front of Boaz. Let him be the one who initiates. But you're, you're, you're standing there saying... I'm a single lady ready, like I am, I'm ready to be married, you know. So here we, we have the kind of story happening there. So you can see, starting at 3, let's start at verse 6, 3-6, that he's, he's ate, he's drank, he's been married, and he's laying down. Um, she observes the place that he lies down, and Naomi tells her to uh, go up to his feet and, and lie down at his feet whenever he's going to sleep. And she, she says, Naomi, everything you're saying, I'm going to do it. I mean, that's pretty pretty awesome kind of response. But verse 6, it says, So she went to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law, whose Naomi commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he li- went to lie down at the heap of the grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet to lay down. Now, this was the customary way that a woman might uh, come to someone at this particular time and say that she's interested in marriage, and he has a chance to say yes or no. So basically, she does that. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, there's a woman at his feet. And he's like, who are you? You know, normal response, midnight, you're sleeping, all of a sudden you're waked up. Who are you? And she says, um, I am Ruth, your servant. And then notice this, spread your wings. Don't, don't put a mental note on that word wings. Don't forget that. Uh, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. In other words, you can bring me into the family. You're a, it's the word we use in this particular time period is redeemer, and that if I get to marry you, you have redeemed me out of this, this destitute life into the family. You can redeem me by bringing me in if you would, you know, spread your wings over me. And it says, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And so he, he's basically saying yes. Now, we note that little word wings because um, as these Old Testament writers write, there's a lot of debate, but I think people said it was Samuel that wrote this. Um, but as they write this, whenever they use words, they want us to note, notice them. Now, it's, it's written in Hebrew, and I don't think any of us read Hebrew, but there's something that kind of stands out at this word wings because it's used in chapter 2 in such a way that when we get to 3, something's supposed to kind of jump out at us. Now, I'm not saying that we all notice that right away, but we have good commentators that tell us that stuff. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 12, and we're going to see the way the word wings is used there and how it's going to relate to us in 3.9. It says, the Lord repay you for what you've done. This is, this is um, Boaz talking to Ruth. Basically, he said, I've seen how you've brought Naomi out of here and you brought us here. And now you're kind of collecting some grain, trying to make ends meet. You're trying to get some food. I've seen what you did. I've heard your whole story about how your husband died. And God's going God's to repay you. God's going to be there for you. And it says in verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward is given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Here it is. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So this is a uh, imagery where the wing or the hand or the protecting arm of God has been over her thus far. And then she looks at him in 3.9 and he says, she tells him to spread his wings over your servant. In other words, she's submitting herself under this particular man, Boaz, as protector. So the second one is Bono's protecting or Boaz prefigures Christ as protector. So Boaz, as he spreads his wing over Ruth here, and as he promises to be the the husband that will protect her, in the same way, Christ does the same thing. This is very similar to the language. If you remember, as we're studying through Matthew, you know, six months ago, whenever we're finally in it, we're in chapter 23, we're in the final week of Jesus. He's walking up to Jerusalem, and he's looking at Israel. And you can just imagine, Jesus, he's lived 30 three years at this particular point, he came to save the people of Israel who were always obstinate, always walking away but would come back. Always walk. They're the people of God. God has poured over his, his whole time trying to save them. And Jesus came to be their Messiah. He came that they would, they would accept him. And he's, he lived 33 years and they're getting to this last week where the people of Israel are just rejecting him. But he deeply wants to, 
bring them under his strong protecting arm and protect him. And he's at that particular place. He's looking over the city and he realizes that they're dejecting him, that they're rejecting him. And he says this in, in Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, that stones those that are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you weren't willing. Christ was willing and wanted to Extend his arm of protection. This was something that, that they were very familiar with. There's, there's verses, there's a couple verses that I'll read to you. One's in Psalm 91, verse 2. Psalm 91, verse 2, it says this. 91, verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So when there's, there's times of trouble... We have a protecting arm that we can go under. We have a refuge that we can go to. I'm going to clarify that just a little bit because you're probably, well, not probably, but you might be misunderstanding. One other place is in, in chapter 45, I'm sorry, chapter 46, verse 1. Psalm 46, 1, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So I'm not saying that once you trust in God, once you become a Christian, then now you get to come under the protection of God and life is fine. You never get hurt. You never have you know, bills that you can't pay. Everything's fine. You never get cancer. You never are sick. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is in the midst of any point of suffering, which is going to happen, we're all going to experience that. We have a refuge. We have a source of strength that we can go to. We have a protector that we can go to. And in the midst of suffering, he will be there for us. So as Boaz protects or extends, and he can't ultimately protect Ruth, he knows that, but he will care for her, he will love her, he will provide for her, he will be her husband, etc. As he is willing to do that, Christ in the same way is the greater, the truer, the better protector or refuge for us in our times of troubles, in our times of suffering, we have a God that we can go to that will always be there for us. Never, ever forsake us. So Bo knows protecting. Jesus knows protecting, right? The next one is in chapter two. This is where it gets really good. Um, The first two I did first, and the reason I'm going out of order, because I like the second two better, and I want to end with the the ones I like the best. So that's just a disclaimer. So I'm going to get, even though you might have thought I was excited, I'm going to get probably a little giddy on these next two. Um, So here we have, in chapter 2, I'm sorry, in verse 2, it says, Ruth the Moabite said, I'm in 2-2, Ruth the Moabite said to Noemi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. So she knows already, it's kind of a little hint right there that something's going to happen, she's going to find favor. And she said to her, "Um, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Notice that, after the reapers. And so there's this little law, um, a way to, in the Israel... uh, in the, Isra- in the Israelite life, I guess you could say, for the, those that were poor, they still wanted them to eat. And so they had these fields where they would go and they would reap the harvest, and then some would kind of fall on the ground and be there. And so they had a law that for the poor, it was lawful. It was not against the law. It was fine for them to come into those particular fields, and those that were still left on the ground, that the poor could come in and glean off of those that had already been harvested. And they could take those remnants, and they could go, and they could feed their, their families. So it's a way to make sure that the poor were taken care of. And so you can see it in verse 3. It says, so she set out and she went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. That's because that's just the way the poor were kind of cared for. And it says, and she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Now, Hebrew writers like to use this word happened. And this just means um, it's the way for it to signal to us that it's not happenstance, but it's totally the sovereign hand of God. Um, so I can say, when I moved to Charleston Southern, uh, when I left CSU, uh, University of South Carolina, I transferred to Charleston Southern, and I just happened to meet Christy the very first day I was there. It just happened that we got, it's no happen. Like God sovereignly is bringing things about in our life, and here he is sovereignly bringing things about so that when she goes, she happens to go to this guy named Boaz who has, you know, a prostitute of a mom, former prostitute of a mom, a dad named Salmon, that he's now part of Israel but also half Gentile, just like Ruth, and he just happens to be single, and she just happens to be single, and he just happens to be wealthy, and he happens to take notice of her, and none of this happens, happenstance. It's actually all the sovereign hand of God. And it says, um, Boaz came from Bethlehem, 
By the way, another similarity from Bethlehem, just like Jesus. And, the, and he said, notice the language he uses here. The Lord be with you. And he answered, the Lord bless you. So you can see there's a good rapport with people that work for him. He's a good guy. Like, there's no questioning on his worthiness or his uprightness. And he talks about God with his workers. And the, the workers don't say, yeah, whatever, buddy. Like, they actually say, and the Lord bless you too, Boaz. We love working for you. So, like, there's this good relationship. You can see that he's a man of God, a man that is upright, and he's single. Like, Ruth is like, yes! He's a little bit older, probably. Um, and so he, the Boaz looks to, to his young man, and she was in char- who was in charge of the reapers, and he said, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman. She came back with Naomi from the cu- country of Moab. She said to please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Basically, I know I'm on your field, Boaz, but let me, let me after they go through, glean, like... I know it's your field and it's your call, but I would love to be able to do that. Th- things aren't looking so great for me. And so, so she came across, please let me glean. So she came, and as she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. So she asked for permission, and he looks at her and he says, here's the deal. This is a dangerous world. I don't want you going in any other fields anymore. I've taken notice of you. I think I like what I see. Things are good. He's, he's, he's throwing out a little game here. He's, he's trying to try and see if she's going to say yes or no. So he's like, don't go anywhere. Stay here and stay close to my young women. I don't want you going out where the men are, where it's danger. I want you to stay close here. I want you under my, my protection, under my, my refuge. I want to watch after you. I want to let you do this. And so we can already see here that Bo knows grace. He is a grace giver. Not only does he say, stay here, he says, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? So I'm, I've, I've already told everybody, no one touches this girl. So he's extending grace. And then when you're thirsty, I want you to go to the vessels and drink that the young men have drawn. So you can see that he's, he's even providing for her as well. So here we have this great picture where Bo knows grace. Or third one, Boaz prefigures Christ as grace giver. He prefigures Christ as grace giver. Boaz could have easily said, nope, get out of here. But instead, he shows grace to his future bride and allows her to glean in the fields. He tells her, I want you to stay in this particular field. I want you to stay safe. He grants access to what he has. He says, my abundance now is your abundance. Abundant grace extended to you. I don't think I need to paint the picture much more from Christ. Abundant grace and forgiveness of, of sin has been extended to you. Grace giver. Now, as we see that, as we see Boaz prefiguring Christ as the grace giver, and we know that Christ is the ultimate grace giver, where he invites us in to stay here. Don't go over there where it's dangerous. Don't go over there where it's dangerous. Stay right here. I want to put a hedge of protection around you. I want you to have my food and my drink. I want you to sup or, or eat on the... The body of Christ and the blood of Jesus, like we do in the Lord's Supper, in a symbolic way. Feast on the gospel. I want you to stay here. This is where spiritually you'll be most protected. I'm not saying physically, but spiritually you'll be most cared for. This is where the grace of God is extended to you. I don't want you to miss this response of Ruth. Sometimes we can just kind of breeze by what she says and say, oh yeah, of course you would do that. Verse 10, it says, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, What have I done to find favor, grace, in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? This is the right response to breathtaking grace. This is the right response. If if you found yourself over this holiday season, over the last six months, over the last year, where the grace of God, the grace-giving Jesus has not amazed you, This is the right response. As you remind yourself of this amazing grace that he has extended to you for forgiveness of your sin, the right response is for us to look at Christ and say, why have I found favor in your eyes? Not that I'm saying no to it. I'm just re-amazed to this breathtaking grace that you would give me. I'm a foreigner. I'm a pagan. I was a child of the devil, as Ephesians 1 says. But now, but God, Ephesians 2, 4, you brought me into your family. The only right response then for me is to have breathtaking amazement of this grace that you've shown me. 
We shouldn't breeze by this proper response to the grace-giving Jesus. Spurgeon, as he's talking about this provision of grace, I love Spurgeon, he says, um, yes, there are graces to which we have not attained yet, places of fellowship nearer to Christ which we have not yet reached, the heights of communion which our feet have not yet climbed. At every banquet of love, there are many baskets of fragments left. Let us magnify the liberality of our glorious Boaz. So as Boaz is extending abundance to Ruth, Jesus Christ is extending abundance to us. There is never ever a time where the baskets of liberality of grace of Jesus and life in him and nurture in him and vitality in him and love from him run dry. Abundance, his abundance that we're in Christ is now our abundance. Come and receive grace from Christ. Bo knows grace and Jesus, Jesus knows grace. He's extended it to us amazingly. The last one that I want you to see is in 2.20. So we see here that um, she's extended, he's extended grace to her. You can see here in, in chapter, tw- I'm sorry, in verse 12, it said, the Lord will repay you for what you've done. Um, I heard your whole story in, in verse 11. Ruth, I've heard your whole story, how you left your native land. You come to this people that you don't know, and the Lord is repaying you for what you've done and a full reward being given to you by the Lord. I know you're thinking, wait a second, I thought you just said it was grace. Now you're saying it's reward. How is God rewarding her, and you're saying it's grace? Isn't grace not like, not like a reward, but it's just free grace? Yes, of course. God has been sovereignly watching over her the entire time, and, the God has been, and God has brought her to this particular place, not because she's earned any of it. And as Boaz is extending to her what seems to be this favor of God, he's not rewarding her for what God has done. Instead, he's an instrument of God still, like everybody else, extending grace to her. So Boaz is not doing anything else out of, of what God is already doing, which has been extending amazing grace and bringing Ruth all the way to this particular point. And so in verse 14, it's mealtime. Boaz says, come, eat some of this bread and morsel with your wine. Just hints of the Lord's Supper there. Um, Let's go down to 17. So she gleaned in this field until evening. She beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. I mean, this is a Proverbs 31 woman, right? She's getting it done. Um, By the way, in the Hebrew Bible, no, no, uh, no accident that in the Hebrew Bible, right after Proverbs is over, I know we have Joshua Judges Ruth, but in the Hebrew Bible, right after Proverbs comes the book of Ruth. So right after you see Proverbs 31, you're like, this lady, my goodness, she's like perfect. Okay, here's Ruth. She, we know she's not perfect. And so the, the writer in the Hebrew is wanting you to see, look at this woman. Look how amazing she is. She's awesome. You want a personal example? Here's Ruth. She, and so there's lots of similarities of the gates and the gates that are in the end of Proverbs and Ruth and how they're tying together for us, showing us that an example of a Proverbs 31 is Ruth. And so you can, you can see a real example where, okay, she doesn't have it all together. Um, so it's okay for me not to have it all together. And I can still be a Proverbs 31 woman and I can get it all out and I can get it done like this woman. I can beat out, glean, and I can take my ephah for barley or you know, in your life, you know, go to Walmart and buy bread. Um, and then she took it up and she went to the city and her mother-in-law said that she had gleaned and she also brought it out and gave food and everything. She had all this stuff. And the mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Naomi's somehow keenly aware of all that's going on, like mother-in-laws always are, right? And then so she told her mother-in-law whom she had worked. And she said, the man's name whom I work today is Boaz. And I call him Bo. Um, she didn't say that. That's just reading it in. And so verse 20, it says, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. Here it is. Here comes the Hesed. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness. Now, a funny little thing here, that word whose is intentionally ambiguous. In other words, we don't know who's the whose are you talking about. Is is who the whose, is it Boaz or who's the whose, is it the Lord? And the answer is yes. It's intentionally ambiguous because he's wanting us to see that it's the Lord's kindness and it's Boaz's kindness both that has not forsaken you. God is with you and he's doing it in the form of Boaz. And so we here we see, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And then Naomi also said to her, so she, mother-in-law's got this great statement. This is it right here. This is where it gets awesome. The man is a close relative of ours. And so all of a sudden Ruth's like, okay, I know what that means. If I'm, he's a close relative and I can be, 
I can be a part of this family. I don't have to just live in destitute and try to grab the grain after people have gone, but I can be invited into the family. And if I'm invited into the family, I actually get the whole field. It's not like I can clean up after everybody. It means if I'm part of Boaz's family, this is mine. All that this is mine. And so now she's thinking, I can be invited into this amazing protection in this family. And so she says, this man's a close relative of ours. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men and they shall have finished all my harvest. He's a close relative of ours. One of our, here it is, I'm back in 20, sorry. One of our redeemers. Now, in in your NIVs, um, it says kinsman redeemers. Um, I like kinsman redeemers actually better. It's the only time, I'm going to have to admit it, the only time I like the NIV more than the ESV. I don't want to hear it. Um, So here we have, here we have, uh, it says kinsman redeemers. So they're, they're close and they're going to see redemption happen. So, Bo knows redeeming. Bo knows redeeming. Or, more proper way, Boaz prefigures Christ as the Redeemer. So, what does it mean then? What are the qualifications in the Old Testament, Old Testament life, to get to be a kinsman redeemer? We have this lady, uh, Ruth, who's come here, and she wants to be brought into the family of God, and she has to have some kind of distant relative to Naomi to, in order to be. So there was qualifications that if you're brought in and there's a distant relative that wants to marry you, then you can be brought into the family. What are the qualifications? There's four qualifications. Um, I got these from, uh, I can't remember where I got them from. These aren't mine. I, I saw them somewhere in a commentary. I should have written it down. These are not mine, but here they are. The first one is blood relationship. The next one is necessary resources. The next one is willingness to buy. And the next one is willingness to marry. Now, as you go through the story, um, Boaz is actually the second guy. There is a closer, there's a closer one. And so they go, Boaz has to be the upright guy. He doesn't just want to, you know, kind of uh, backdoor this guy and get in there. He, he says, if the other guy wants her, I can't stop it. And so they go to the other guy and the other guy's like, no, nah, I don't want her. And so Boaz is like, I am in. It's mine now. I can do it. And so he is all four of these things, blood relationship, necessary resources. He's got dough, willing to buy. Not only does he have the dough, but he's willing to spend it. And not only is he willing to spend it, he's willing to marry so he is now meeting all the qualifications in the Old Testament of getting to be a kinsman redeemer. Now, all that's there for us to see that story, but realize there's something greater here. That Jesus, since Jesus, Boaz is prefiguring Jesus as redeeming, that means Jesus is the true and better redeemer. So let's just, and maybe these are things you know, but let's just rehearse these ideas and be amazed at this. Blood relationship. Jesus fulfills all four of these things for us. The first one is in Galatians chapter 4, where now, if you're in the family of God, you are brought into the blood relationship. It says it this way, in Galatians 4, 4, and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his God into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So because of Christ, you are now made part of the blood-bought relationship into the family. So that's the first one. Christ fulfills this by making us. He He is the necessary kinsman for our relationship to now be redeemed with God. The second one is necessary resources. Does Jesus have the necessary resources in order to make the purchase for us to be redeemed? 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, absolutely. You were ransomed, bought. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver. That's the way Boaz bought Ruth. But that's not how Christ bought us. Instead, something more precious, something more valuable, but with not with the gold or silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So if we, does Jesus have the necessary resources? His own blood is the necessary resource. Jesus is able to fully redeem us because he bought us with his own precious blood. So not only is he making us now blood relationship, not only does he have the necessary resources, but we also know that he's willing to buy. Jesus was not pressured in any sense of the, of the way to uh, redeem us or buy us into his family. He tells us so much in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, verse 18, it says this. 
No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. So we know that Jesus not only has the resources, not only is he we part of the blood relationship, but he is absolutely willing. No one's coercing him. No one's forcing him. Instead, he deeply wants to be the one that would buy us with his own life. And lastly, willing to marry. Willing to marry. Christ tells us in Ephesians through Paul that Husbands, you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And this is how Christ loves us. That he gave himself up for his own bride, the church. He calls us his bride, therefore he has married us. That he might sanctify or cleanse us completely, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. So Jesus fulfills this because we have now been redeemed out of death and into the heavenly inheritance as the bride of Christ. Jesus is the true and better Boaz, because in redeeming, because he has fulfilled all four of these things completely for us. He has now brought us into the blood relationship. He has all the necessary resources, namely his blood. He is willing to buy because he loves us so much. And he's willing to marry us in that church is now married to Christ and we are part of his family. So as we hear all this, the whole point of we've been going through this is to show you how these Old Testament figures prefigure Christ and they in some way embody the characteristics of Jesus. And so as we look back at those particular things, we see Boaz redeemed Ruth. He was willing to buy her and purchase her and make her into the family in the same way that Jesus is willing to redeem us and buy us with his own blood and purchase us and make us into the family. When we hear that, we say, okay, so then what? At least I do. Okay, Fudd, you've done that now for three weeks. You, well, Jack's done it once and you done it twice. So are you just telling the story so that when we get to this, we can say, okay, I understand that. So now I know this. So the next time I'm talking to somebody about Boaz, which will probably be next week, I can say, you know about Boaz? He's actually the, the uh, true and better Jesus. Let me tell you about Bo. He knows some stuff. And then you, you open it up the Bible. Like, is that the whole point that we're trying to communicate here? In some ways, yes. In some ways, yes. I think that You're having, as Jack alluded to and talked, not alluded to, but outright said, you're having a deeper understanding of the gospel and all of its facets and all of its avenues and all of its beauty from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. You're understanding how everything is about the gospel is what you need. As you understand it more, you you can read and see it in other places and your heart certainly becomes more, quote unquote, gospel-centered in love with Jesus. But I think that most of us, as we hear that, we say, that's nice, Fudd, but I want an application. Like, i got to walk out of here. What do I need to do? And don't tell me this, because you always say this, Fudd, uh, that I don't need to do anything because Jesus has already done everything. You always say that, and I'm, I'm tired of that. Like, I really want something to do besides just know more about the gospel and believe it, Fudd. Okay, i, I got some applications. But I don't think these are direct applications from Ruth. Um... Read your Bible and pray every day. Stop playing games with your life and wasting it on trivial things. Love your wife or husband the way that Christ has commanded you. Lead somebody to faith in Jesus. Don't be okay with ongoing sin in your life. Kill it. Like Boaz as much grace that's been extended to you from God, try your hardest to extend the equal amount of grace to your fellow man. There's some applications. But the reality is, and I know it, for those of you that hear those things, but step out and over the next month, the next two months, your life still looks like you're wasting it with trivial things. You never lead anybody. You never even tell anybody about Jesus. You continue on with a life that doesn't ever engage Christ in the word or praying. You're okay with sin. Etc., etc. This is what I want to do. I want to read you some verses. Listen, I believe in the Bible. I believe in its power. I don't want to just lay out to-do lists for you. Instead, I think that if we hold out what Christ has done for us, if we realize 
the price that he's paid and how much he deeply loves us, if we understand the magnitude of redemption that we've been bought from, that is the motivation to do the applications. I don't want to give you a to-do list. I want your heart to love Jesus. I mean, there's the same idea in the book of, in the book of Hosea. Hosea is told, you're going to have a wife named Gomer. Awful name. But she is going to be a prostitute, and she is going to give herself away to men. Over and over, she's going to love these men. You're not going to be able to do anything. But here's the problem, Hosea. You're never going to stop loving her. Most men would say, okay, I've been hurt enough. She can go. I'm going to find someone that loves me. But God said, I'm going to put something in your heart, Hosea, that no matter what, you cannot let her go. At the end of the day, after she's done everything, you're still going to say to yourself, I still love her. And I want her back. And you're going to go, and she's going to be in this house of prostitution, and you're going to take it, and you're going to buy her out of it, and you're going to bring her back, and you're going to say, Gomer, I don't want you to do that anymore. I still love you. And that's what he's done for us. Even though we've willingly gone off, God's still saying, I want you back. I'm willing to buy you with the most precious thing in the world, my son. I want you back because I've never stopped loving you. So I just want to read you some verses of this redemption, this buying back of sinners out of bondage to sin that Christ has done for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. That means we should have hung on the cross, and yet he willingly did it for us. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of one, born under law, to redeem those that are under law, that we might become adopted now as sons and daughters. Titus 2, 4. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness. He redeemed you from all of your sin in order not just to bring you out of sin, but then also the amazing transaction to purify you, to say you're completely innocent and righteous now, to purify himself, a people of his own possession. And what do they do now? Zealous to go do good works. Zealous. Applications, I don't need to tell them to you. Redeemed people are zealous to do those things. Hebrews 9, 12, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by a means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption for us. His cross secures for us eternal redemption. Ephesians 1, 7, in Jesus, we have redemption, the buying back into the family of God through his blood, the forgiveness of all of our trespasses. Why would God do that? According to the riches of his grace. No one overflows with grace more than God. And lastly, Romans 3, 23 and 24. Listen, if you're ever going to read somebody 23, don't not read them 24. Double negative, but whatever. 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Man, we know that. We're destitute. We're depraved. We're awful. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, the buying back that is in Christ Jesus. Don't ever read somebody 23 without 24. We're all justified by grace as a gift. So as we read this story, as we read, we all want to say, I'm Boaz. Look at me, big and strong. I take care of people. I'm supposed to be good like him, and my workers are supposed to like me, or I'm supposed to be a worker. And I'm, I want, none of us are Boaz. We're all Ruth. Jesus is Boaz. We're Ruth. We're the pagan, the outsider, the foreigner, the Gentile, who has been redeemed by Boaz and brought into the family of God. At the very end of the chapter, the women are looking at them and they're saying this. In verse 14, they look at Naomi talking about this whole situation that's happened with Ruth. And they say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a kinsman redeemer. May God's name be renowned in Israel. I'm just saying, the same is for you. Remedy, don't miss this. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you Remedy, this day without a kinsman redeemer. His name is Jesus. May we as Remedy Church make his name renowned. May we lift it up higher and higher and glorify him with our entire lives because Christ has not left you by yourself. He has not left you by yourself. 
He's given you a redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that these stories in the Old Testament point us to Jesus. And they're not just about a guy named Boaz. While he seems to be just an awesome guy, it's disappointing if it's just about him. But when it's about you and the fact that you have not left us, you have not forsaken us, but you have redeemed us. You have bought us back, though we willingly, willingly walk away from you. You said, I I still love you. I still love you and I want you back. God, our only right response is, is roots. Falling down our faces. Why have we found grace in your eyes? Breathtaking amazement at this grace. Who are we? But the answer is, your sons and daughters. Amazing. I pray that this Christmas season would be a marked difference in the way that we respond to the fact that Jesus came to rescue us. Be with us now as we worship. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.